All right, we are going to finish Ecclesiastes today. If you want to turn to chapter 12, uh, some of the verses will be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible or Bible app, feel free to open that. Um, we're going to be starting at verse 9 of chapter 12. Um, in, in reality, there are really only two kinds of movies. There are those with satisfying endings and those with unsatisfying endings. All kinds of movies have tension in them. You know, even, even children's movies have some tension that builds up throughout. And those with satisfying endings, they resolve that tension at the end. And you're left feeling wonderful. And then there are those that don't resolve the tension and you don't feel as wonderful. And these movies that don't resolve the tension usually are very intentional about it, right? Like, they're trying to make a statement about life, that in life, not all tension is resolved. Not all questions get answered. Not all broken relationships get reconciled. The, good guy, the guy doesn't always get the girl. The good guys don't always win, etc. And up until this point in Ecclesiastes, it's kind of been like a movie with an unresolved ending, an unsatisfying ending. Of course, we've, we've looked forward and we've taken the big picture and so we, we see some sort of satisfaction. But as we confess today in our confession, and if you've been with us through this, there's a lot in here that is not very satisfying. Because it's true that life is often frustrating, full of weariness and unhappiness and injustice and evil. And... Perhaps you were the kind of person that likes those unsatisfying ending movies. And perhaps you were also somebody who's been very content with Ecclesiastes up until this point. Um, and just leaving it there. Perhaps if Ecclesiastes ended in verse 8 last couple weeks ago, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You're like, yeah, that seems about, about right. Can end, end right there. Let's just be honest about the world and our experience in it. Nothing really satisfies. Life is hard. Much is left unresolved. And of course, that is true. And it does us no good to be dishonest about the reality of life. And so one of the benefits of Ecclesiastes, and I hope of our series, our walk through it, is that we learn to, be, we learn to have a more freedom to be honest about our struggles and frustrations and dissatisfactions with life. But Ecclesiastes doesn't end in verse 8. And, spoiler alert, Ecclesiastes, the Bible, does not end with Ecclesiastes. There is more to come. And so there here in Ecclesiastes, there's five more verses, and they are a little bit more like those movies with satisfying endings. Though the analogy eventually falls apart and is not perfect. But Ecclesiastes doesn't end with a question or mystery, or just this observation of life is vain. But it ends with a confident proclamation of purpose and meaning to life. And as we've said before, all of Ecclesiastes is meant to be read in light of this. The end of the matter. We're told very specifically. To sum it all up. Okay, so we're going to start at verse 9. We'll start with verses 9 through 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. 
weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So before we get to the end of the matter, the final conclusion in verses 13 to 14, we have this reflection on the value of wisdom. The value of words of truth and words of delight. And ultimately, in context here, wisdom is not just any wisdom. This is wisdom of living in a world created by God, a world sovereignly ruled over by God, and trusting in God. James, in the New Testament, calls this wisdom from above. This is God's wisdom. And so notice a couple things the author says here. He says that words of wisdom are like goads. Uh, So a goad was a long pointed stick, sometimes had sharp nails embedded to the end of it, and it was used to prod oxen as they were going along plowing to keep them on the, the right path. Similarly, words of truth and and wisdom and delight keep us on the right path, even if sometimes that is painful, even if it comes sometimes through rebuke and correction. Because like oxen, we often stray. We go our own ways, and we we need to have our wills and our hearts and desires prodded and compelled to stay on the right path. And God's Word does that for us. Additionally, the words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed, he says. They, in other words, they keep us grounded and rooted and secure and stable. We're not going to be easily shaken if we heed the words of the wise. Now, in verse 11, we are told that these words of the wise are given by one shepherd. And depending on your Bible version, shepherd may be uh, capitalized signifying that this is perhaps a reference to God as a shepherd. Now, some of your Bibles don't have it capitalized, so this is an interpretive issue. It's not entirely clear in the original Greek uh, or Hebrew um, what or who shepherd is a reference to. However, whether or not this is referring to God, from a biblical perspective, Ecclesiastes is part of God's inspired word, and all of God's words are words of truth, and words of delight. Furthermore, God is often in Scripture presented as a shepherd, right, who guides and directs and protects and cares for and feeds his sheep, his people, um, and most specifically, through his word. God's words are not only true, they are words of truth, but they are also words of delight. They are life-giving, They are salvation-bringing, they are joy-inducing, they are righteousness and godliness compelling. There is life in God's word. And so, again, words of truth and words of delight given by one shepherd, ultimately this is what God's word is for us. And so ultimately when we approach a book like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or any other biblical books, we don't heed it merely because it seems wise or merely because it seems like it would help our lives, but because God has spoken. 
There's a world of difference between studying and reading God's Word and all other forms of study and learning. And that seems to be what uh, the author is getting at in the end of verse 12 there, when he says, of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So in other words, don't attempt to build your life on just gaining knowledge. Don't attempt to secure your identity and to find a satisfying solution to life simply by acquiring knowledge, whether that's knowledge of business or financial investments or sports or politics or relationships or parenting or marriage or gardening, whatever it may be, not that any of those things, you know, there isn't value in learning all of those things. But don't build your life on knowledge of those things and neglect what God has said. Now, what has God said? What is God calling us to? Is there some end or goal or Simple way to sum up what God is leading us towards. Some of you may be like very just like simplified statements. Well, that's what the end of Ecclesiastes gives us. Verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here we finally have a simple and succinct goal for living life. A conclusion. The end of the matter. It's all been summed up. Everything has been heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, if we go back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes, we get this question that hangs over the entire work that is behind everything in this book. In verse 2, in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, we get, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what is the point of life? Is there any gain? Is there any satisfying solution to life? And the sub-conclusion throughout the entire book is, well, it doesn't seem like it. All is weariness. All is vanity. It seems like there's no purpose to life. As far as we can figure out, we can't find a satisfying solution to life. Again and again, in many ways, the book has asked us this question. Is there a satisfying key to life? Is there a way for us to climb up out of all of our frustrations and dissatisfactions and weariness and all of the evil and injustices in this life? And this is a question that we're all asking. We're all endeavoring after. And so notice, as this is summed up here, notice what God does not give us in response to all of these questions and all of this searching. He doesn't give us all the answers we want. Like, Ecclesiastes doesn't end with like just chapters and chapters of answers to our questions. He doesn't immediately satisfy all of our longings. We, we, if you are a believer, you still find yourself longing for things that you don't get. And he doesn't immediately remove us from all suffering and pain and tears and just give us an easy path through the rest of life. Instead, 
What does God give us here? He gives us a command. You know, we might have been like, wait, 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 God, that's, that's not the, and this is where the analogy of the satisfying endings kind of falls short, because this wasn't the ending exactly we had anticipated. God gives us a command. He gives us an exhortation to live life in a certain way towards a certain end and goal. In other words, he gives us the purpose of our lives, the reason we are created. You see, the problem we have is not simply that we can't find a satisfying solution to life. It's also that we don't know where to look. We're not even sure what life is for. We have all these questions, but we're not even sure they're the right questions. Even more than that, we're not even sure getting our questions answered is the greatest need we have. An analogy may, may help. So one of the joys of being a child is that there are lots of decisions and problems and worries that you don't have to handle. Thank you, parents. Right? A child living at home doesn't need to figure out what to make for dinner, doesn't need to figure out what's in the fridge and what we need to go to the grocery store for dinner, doesn't need to figure out what the day is going to look like, doesn't need to worry about the, the projects around the house that need taken care of, or how to pay bills. If all of this was on a child's plate, it would, th- that would not be a child. But since parents usually take care of all this, a child has incredible freedom to enjoy life. It's a wonderful thing. It's almost like the job description of a child is enjoy life under the loving care and authority of your parents. They're taking care of all those things. It's the loving care and authority of parents that allows children to be, in a sense, carefree and enjoy life. Well, it seems that God is doing something similar with us. We have countless questions and decisions and problems and burdens before us every day. We are wondering every day, we are trying to figure out how can I live the good life? How can I create and secure the good life? And we tend to want to be more like adults than children with this. We want to take this all on ourselves. We want to hand it all, handle it all. We want to figure it all out. But even more than that, we expect figuring it all out will give us satisfaction. We expect us taking all of this on is going to bring us meaning and identity and worth and even salvation. And God comes along, and he doesn't grant us that. He doesn't grant us that satisfaction. He doesn't answer all of our questions. Again, he doesn't just immediately make everything fine and easy and comfortable. Instead, he says, enjoy life as you live under my care and authority. Trust me with all of that and enjoy life as my child. Here's all you need to know. Here's the end of the matter. Fear me and keep my commands. That is the end to which you were made. That is the end to which you are to live. You don't need to figure out the meaning to life. In fact, it's already figured out. It's already built into your very fibers. And 
And as much as our age doesn't like to be told that there is one objective meaning to life, as much as our hearts want to be self-ruled and to figure out our own meaning and happiness in life, it is in fact incredibly freeing to be told that meaning is built in, that it's already there, and not to carry the weight on our shoulders every day of having to figure out a purpose to our lives. One commentator puts it like this, uh, commenting on this passage. He says, Here at last we shall find reality. Fear God and keep his commandments. And find ourselves. Not, however, as perfectionists, seeking what is best for them, but as servants reporting to their proper master. Fear God is a call that puts us in our place and all other fears, hopes, and admirations in their place. servants reporting to their proper master. Now, when you hear that, you may not get excited. Oh, the meaning of life is reporting to our proper master. But the big idea in this quote and in this passage here is that life is relational. Life has to do, the meaning of life has to do with being in a relationship with our creator God, with our shepherd God, with our good God. That's what we were created for. It's not about figuring out life, perhaps God, with God's help along the way, but ultimately so that we can get on with it. It's not about self-sufficiency and independence and becoming a self-made man or woman. It is about being in right relationship with God. And what does this relationship look like? Fear God. It includes a proper estimation an acknowledgement of who he is. That is, in essence, what it means to fear God. Charles Bridges describes the fear of the Lord as that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's law. That affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's law. Um, the fear of the Lord is one of the most interesting concepts in scripture to, to study. Um, on the one hand, as you read through scripture, God is regularly making it clear that those who have no fear of him, those to whom he is small and insignificant, have every reason to fear him, right? In the sense of be terrified. Like, it's the same word. It, it, the fear of the Lord doesn't, like, not ever mean be terrified. It, it's the same word. It sometimes means, no, be terrified. But, God is also constantly telling his people, all throughout scripture, those who actually fear him and make much of him, to not fear, to, to not be terrified. It's the, the most common command in scripture is do not be afraid. Do not fear. And so in a way, the fear of the Lord is the determining difference between those who belong to God and live under his loving care and authority, and those who don't. Fear the Lord, fear God, and keep his commandments. So this is also a relationship that, um, into which we are called to obey God. Again, obedience, as you look through scripture, that God desires and calls us to, isn't about just outward kind of, rote 
compliance disconnected from our hearts. No, it's about an inward heart obedience compelled by God's, spe- uh, by God's Spirit. Uh, God's people know that God is good, and they know that because He is good, all that He commands of us is also good. So fear God and keep His commandments. And then incredibly, we are told that this is the whole duty of man. This is not just like one among many priorities. This is the whole duty of man and woman. You're not off the hook. What is our responsibility in life? Is it to grab life by the horns and engineer it towards whatever end we desire? Is it to squeeze every ounce of happiness out of every situation and relationship and experience that we can just to have a good time? Is it to find the answers to all of our questions? There's a good and right place for questions. And joy is something that God wants for us. But the duty we have and the path to joy is to fear God and keep his commands. In our our working, in our parenting, in our marriages, in our studying, in school, in homework, in our handling our financing and running our businesses and our churches and all that God has called, called us to over and above everything else, all of our responsibilities can be summed up as do this in the fear of the Lord, keeping his commandments. Now, after all that we've gone through in Ecclesiastes, this you know, and all the unsatisfying endings we've had to endure, this conclusion should come as some relief. God's commands, God's words are truly good and pleasing. Psalm 19 tells us, just in wonderful language, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Good. Uh, Again, God's commands for us are good good for us, and we need them. However, where would we be if this is all we had? If this is all we had to go off, if this was the end of the Bible, if this was the end of God's revelation to us? Would we be gathered here today if we had simply fear God and keep his commandments? Would your own heart love God and run to God over and over again if all you had is fear God and keep his commandments? Here's the thing. While God's commands are good and they do point us in the right direction and they show us the meaning and purpose and end of life and they show us where joy is to be found, they do not enable us to get there. They don't provide the motivation. 
the power, the desire to actually fear God and keep his commands any more than you or I standing up in the middle of a crowd and saying, fear me and keep my commands is going to cause anyone to actually do that. Why should they? Why should we make much of God? You see, the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. The problem isn't that we just need some more commands, more education, more help. The problem is that we have a sin nature that loves self over God. That prefers sin over obedience. And that thinks, like Adam and Eve, that we know a better way to happiness. And that God is just trying to keep us from that. And so, this end of the matter in Ecclesiastes is not the end of the matter in the Bible. This whole duty of man is not the whole work of God. It's not the end of the story. God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves, just to be sufficient in ourselves, to get our act together or else. He knows our need. Now, the end of the matter in God's wisdom and grace is not a command, but an announcement, a proclamation. It's not a go and do this, but it's been done. Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't come simply to instruct and direct his sheep, perhaps with greater authority, but he comes to lay down his life for the sheep. He doesn't just point us in the right direction. He's like, no, you're off that way. He goes before us and he takes, he lives the life we were meant to live and he suffers and dies for our sin. He says, I came that they, that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And don't misunderstand this. Sometimes Jesus' laying down his life for us, for our sins, is presented as only about having our sins forgiven so that we can then, well, just get on with our life minus the guilt. And certainly, Jesus' death in our place does forgive our sins, past, present, and future, and that is incredibly wonderful. But it also does more than that. In Jesus, God isn't just saving us objectively. He is changing us subjectively to love him, to fear him, to obey his commands from our heart. We don't, again, just need to be told what to do or where to go. We need our hearts changed, the bent of our hearts changed. We need the heart motivation to live like our children under the loving care and authority of our God. To desire that, to continue on in that. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. As we come to trust in him as our Savior and Lord, we are given a new regenerate heart with new desires, love for God and desire to please him, and to actually pursue the whole duty of man, fearing God and keeping his commandments. So to kind of sum all of this up, God's commands, as well as God's warnings, I mean, we have here as well, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All of this, God's commands and warnings, are 
good and do point us in the right direction and point us to life and our purpose. They say, go, go that way. That is not that way. That is the way to life and peace and joy. But God's love and kindness and grace culminating in his giving his son Jesus to die for us in our place for our sins give us the actual motivation and the strength and desire to actually go in that direction. To draw near to God rather than cower in fear and run away. And not just once, but to continually draw near to him and to live under his loving care and authority. So if I may just briefly sum up Ecclesiastes and what we've seen as we've gone through it. Be honest about the struggles of life. There is freedom to acknowledge and confess that life is wearisome, an unhappy business. These are all terms from Ecclesiastes. It seems vain. Be honest about that. Don't, don't like so much of our world today, just ignore and just fill your life with distractions and diversions of, in so many ways and just ignore all of that just to get by. However, bring all of those fears and worries and questions and frustrations as well as your sin and guilt to God. Trusting in Him, resting in His sovereignty, hoping in his vindication and promises, trusting in the finished work of Christ that makes you a beloved child of God and live under his loving care and authority. Let's pray.